is certainty even attainable when we're talking about faith? You know, for many of us, it's the hypocrite who has certainty. It's, it's the arrogant person who is so sure of their beliefs. The humble person, on the other hand, is the one who expresses doubts. The humble person is the one who, who has an open mind. You know, rational, well-educated people, they see that, that uh, issues are always complex and that certainty is elusive. It's easy to be suspicious of people who make strong claims about anything, but even more so in the realm of religion. It raises an eyebrow. How could they be so confident? And so it may be surprising that when Paul finally gets around to saying to the Colossians why he has been struggling for them, and while he has been writing this letter to them so intently, it's so that they can reach full assurance. The phrase can also be translated full confidence. Assurance, at least according to Paul here, is not a danger, not a pathway to hypocrisy or arrogance, although it could be wrongly placed. But for Paul and what he's trying to say here, it is of utmost importance. It's a virtue. But more than that, it's the goal that he has been striving so that they can reach. Now, while not every Christian has assurance, you can actually be a Christian and not have that level of assurance. It is something that Scripture says God wants for you. He wants you to have it. Why? Well, let's look at this passage and see the great reasons why Paul gives for the centrality, the importance of assurance. So let's, let's begin, though, with prayer. Father, you are the great, uh, the great potter. We are the clay. We pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, that we do not hear it with hard hearts. We do not face it in such a way so rigid that you have to break us to receive it, to be changed by it. Help us to be soft in your hands. Help us to be molded. Make us new. Through the power of your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. 2 Peter uh, tells us that we need to strive to make our calling and election sure. And echoing that, and I think this passage, the Westminster Confession of Faith, written hundreds of years ago, says it's the duty of everyone to give all diligence in making his calling and election sure. Why? Why is it so important? I think we can think of several reasons how it could be a benefit to us. It could certainly bring a lot of joy in our lives. It could bring contentment. But Paul gives a very specific reason here. For him, it is the key to protecting believers 
against threats that are out there. Verse 4, he says, I want to make sure that no one deludes you with plausible arguments. Then later in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And based on these verses, scholars have tried to uh, piece together what was happening in Colossae. Like many of Paul's letters, it is hard to know what uh, the, the church he is addressing was really going through. We have, you know, as it were, one side of the phone conversation. We don't know exactly what, what their response would be or, or all the details of what's going on. So scholars have tried to reconstruct it. What has happened? And many have conjectured that some false teachers have come in and infiltrated the church at Colossae. And then they start speculating, who were they and, and what were they teaching? And some look to, to what Paul is saying here and, and find some clues. He uses the word like mystery and knowledge. And he focuses on philosophy. And so they, they conjecture that what was going on here was some Greek philosophers have come in and have tried to uh, mingle Greek philosophy with Christianity perhaps a, a sort of early Gnosticism, an, an early heresy that, that uh, afflicted the church in the first few centuries. Others will look a little bit later in the chapter and see uh, things like Sabbath and circumcision mentioned, and even in this passage, a, a, a talk of tradition, and say, well, perhaps these were Jewish believers, who, uh, or Jewish uh, people who came into the church and, and tried to lead people away from the faith because of uh, their convictions. And then, of course, there's the theory that it was a mixture of people who were Jewish, Greek uh, believers, came into the church and infiltrated it. Um, I think there's uh, good arguments for all of those, but also there's a good argument to say that there was no group infiltrating the church Paul is pretty generic in how he speaks about those coming in, those they need to be careful with. So much so that um, we don't really get a sense as to what they're teaching. But Paul is still intent on preparing them to face whatever comes. Look at the, the threat he describes here. Verse 8, he warns them against philosophy and empty deceit. Now, Paul's not against all philosophy, but he combines it with this empty deceit, this idea that, that there could be these sophisticated-sounding arguments that will come in there and persuade them that uh, what they believe is simple or simplistic. To lead them away with, uh, with, with rational arguments that, though they sound complicated, are really empty. I've taken enough philosophy classes to where even really strange ideas can sound brilliant and uh, complicated and give this air of, uh, wow, how can I ever argue against it? And yet when you 
really think about what it would mean to the world or, or human life, it, it just rings untrue. That's the emptiness he speaks of here. Human tradition, this pressure to conform, to fit in. You know, sometimes we talk about tradition as if we're just, you know, picking up rituals year after year, doing the same thing, but, but all tradition is really morality. Do you fit in? Or are you deviant? Do you depart from what is expected of you? Paul then goes on to talk about elemental spirits. Now, it's unclear about what he means by that. It could be some, something referring to demonic forces, or it could mean just simply referring to the, the fundamental elements. Air, fire, water, earth. A focus on these things, and, and in, in such a way that it's, it's like uh, focusing on the minutia. A sense of, of intellectual idolatry. <laughs> I know many of us have been there, whether it's, it's getting into a field so closely that it becomes all-consuming or, or working on a project that, that takes on eternal significance. It's so great that it's hard to, just to back you up and say, this is all out of, out of all proportion. The worth you're giving this is out of all proportion to what you should. Now, the strange thing is that Paul believes that these ideas out there could actually deceive the Colossians, delude them, and even go so far as to say, take them captive, to kidnap them. And I have to think, Paul, you sound a little paranoid here. I'm a little suspicious of someone who sees threats everywhere and in everything. It sounds like a conspiracy theory. Are there really people out there trying to unconvert you? Are there people out there trying to deceive you? I mean, I, I have to admit, I do get calls every single day of people trying to deceive me. You, it sounds like you get them too. That if I uh, can support some Nigerian prince somewhere, that a great deal of money might come to me. Or the ones I've been getting recently, that uh, some legal action is going to be taken against me if I don't supply them with my social security number or some other personal details. But, you know, I get no robocalls coming to me wanting to debate philosophy. It'd be a really interesting robocall, wouldn't it? Select two if you want to debate Kant. Select three if Heidegger, you know. And I get no... Uh, messages coming to me that want to, to uh, trick me out of my faith. There may be the occasional person coming to my door wanting to, to tell me about another faith, but, but they're coming straightforward with clear intentions not to deceive, not to dupe me. But is it, is it that there are these forces out there trying to persuade us you know, I think we need to take Paul seriously here. Because though there aren't those overt, in-your-face deceivers, we also have to be disabused of this idea 
that the world is really neutral and passive. You know, in reality, everyone seeks to convert. And the world around us is full of, of people and groups and thinkers trying to convert. William Willimon makes this point when he talks about Christians doing evangelism and how so many people get upset about Christians evangelizing others. He says, the dominant culture in which we live is that of expressive individualism. Since the Enlightenment, people like to say, well, what the church says might be okay for some, but I think you have to determine right and wrong for yourselves. You've heard this. But they're not thinking for themselves. They're doing exactly what the culture tells them. In reality, they're espousing the very way of knowing that's been imposed on them by the culture, a very white, Western, individualistic one. The question, do you think we ought to convert people to Christ, assumes that people are already untouched, unformed people out there. And there are pushy Christians trying to convert them to their way of thinking. Willimon says, no, everyone has been deeply formed into some point of view that is not innate. The real question you must face is which externally imposed formation will have its way on you. You are being formed. You have been formed ever since your birth. You're constantly being molded in a direction by millions of different forces. And you seek to convert. I know I do. How often have I said, boy, the world would work a lot better if people just thought and acted like me. Appreciate the laugh. Thank you. It's true. We have that impulse. It isn't always aggressive, it isn't always overt, it's, it's subtle, but it does take us captive. It isn't people coming through the doors of the church, infiltrating to such a degree that they want to come in and challenge what we say here. But it's a subtle influence all around us that can lead us away. So that by verse 16, Paul can warn us that others are exerting pressure on us so much so that they will judge us. He says, make sure that no one else judges you. You see, what's happening is that we hand over this authority to other people and other things, authority that only God has. You see, on our end, it's not so much that we abandon God and switch to some other faith, on our end, it typically uh, comes from elevating everything else to the same level as God. We give everything the right to judge us. We give everything the power over us. And so God's voice gets drowned out, blended in with everything else. It leads us to turning ourselves over to philosophies, to traditions, and to moralities. Our problem, most of us, our problem is that we don't realize that we're vulnerable 
We don't believe the threat. We expect things to be direct and obvious. And so we're, we're oftentimes aloof to the things that mold us. Well, how can we be protected? What will shield us from things that will, will lead us away from faith? Paul's answer is assurance. That's the connection he makes early in this passage. And between verses, four, verses 2 and verses 4, he says that he is striving for them to reach assurance so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. You see the connection? Assurance so that no one will delude you with arguments. But how can a Christian find assurance? How do you know? How do you know you can be right with God? How do you know that he has accepted you? If we were to take that admonition from Peter, how can we be diligent in seeking out our assurance? And this is where we often run into trouble. For many of us, we look to things that are of no use to us. How many of us turn to our feelings? We look inside and we, we expect that a person who is in a healthy Christian, Christian life, someone, someone who is right with God, it, it must produce certain feelings. We must have a, a love toward God. It must produce joy in our life, maybe an inner peace. And then we go through these times where we experience darkness. Maybe even worse, maybe it turns into depression. Everything seems gray. Every morning there's a shadow hanging over you. Some of us are discouraged. It feels like there's an emptiness. God seems distant. Our love for him, if we were to, to be honest, seems lukewarm. And our conclusion based on this is, this can't be how a Christian feels. This must not be right. Others of us look to our morality. We have this idea of what a Christian should look like. And we see ourselves and we see struggle after struggle after struggle. Things that we have been struggling with for 10, 20 years. Why isn't it gone? Sure, Christians should struggle with sin, but not the same sin. And we can maybe put on a good show for others, but we're desperately fearful that someone is going to find us out and believe that we don't belong. We turn to spiritual disciplines, all, anything we can do to manufacture piety so that we can find security, but we can never do enough. If you're to answer that question, when you go to bed at night, could I have done more? I know for myself there is never a day when my head hits the pillow that I could say I could have done, I, that I couldn't have done more. Every day. Others turn to affirmation. Either career affirmation or relational affirmation to be accepted, to know that they're, they're uh, 
the respectable toward others. And even in our faith, we don't want to look naive. We want to have a faith that's, that's some, somewhat uh, rational and that is respectable by other people. And we could get affirmation from 99% of the people, but it's that 1% that will get all the power. It just takes one comment to completely undo us. You see, oftentimes our pursuit of assurance actually produces more doubts in us than when we began. How can we find it? You know, it strikes me that these methods that we use to find assurance are exactly what Paul criticizes here. We look to our feelings. We conform to some morality. We look to approval of others that can, that can judge us. They're the very things that lead us away. Now, Paul makes a contrast here, a very important contrast between verses 8 and 9. He, he says in verse 8, that all of these things that he's been talking about that have been out there to deceive us, he says they are according to, according to human tradition, according to the intellect of this world, but not according to Christ. You see, what he's saying there is all the things that we look to to have this assurance they come from us. They come from humanity and our effort to appeal to God, our efforts to climb the ladder. They are according to humanity, but not according to Christ. Well, who is Christ? What's so significant about him? He says it right there in the next verse. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hear what he's saying? We make all our efforts to find assurance with God on our own terms. The only place that we can find assurance is on God's terms because he came down to us. The fullness of God came bodily in a human body. Christ in his very body was God coming to us. In the very human body of Christ was God's presence. And so as we are in Christ, as we receive him and what he's done for us, we've done what we could not do ourselves. The path to assurance is not looking inward. It's looking to Christ. Now that can seem very simple. In fact, it's so simple that we pro we're prone to discount it. There must be more. It must, it must have, have to be some, some complex thing, some, something that's going to cause a real rigor and pain. You know, I hear the criticisms of sermons sometimes. You know, okay, stop talking about theology and just tell me what to do. Please give me the five points that I can just go home and do this week and I'll be happy and I know that I've done what God's asked me to do. And I have to say, the hardest thing that you could do this week, the most challenging thing you can do this week, the thing that's almost excruciating for you, is to say, it's not about me. It's to let go of trying 
to earn God's favor. It is to rest secure on him. It's a simple message, but it's not simplistic. This is Paul and his path he recommends for assurance. Verse 6, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him. As you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, how are you supposed to walk as a Christian life? How are, in a Christian life, how are you supposed to live? The same exact way as how you began. Acknowledging your sin and turning to Christ alone for hope and for salvation. We often think that, that receiving Christ is the basics. That's the entry point. That's for non-Christians. But now we need to move to level two, right, or level three. We need to, we need to start growing. We need to start, start taking off. So tell me. Give me the plan to do. Give me the hard stuff. One of the great blessings in the last generation has been what's been termed the gospel-centered movement. And there have been some good voices that have explained what that has meant and, and really brought revival to the church. Tim Keller helpfully sums it up when he says, we never get beyond the gospel. In our Christian life, we never get beyond the gospel to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. Now that very message has confused a lot of people. Because it sometimes sounds as if, well, all I have to do is believe, and then I can just live any way that I want. That's the very source of hypocrisy. Somebody who, who says that they're righteous, but then lives in a way that just has no acknowledgement of how God uh, calls us to live. But that's not Keller's point, and that's certainly not Paul's point here. His point is that the gospel is the very thing that will help us every single day. It's not something that we abandon at first, but something that will help us address every single sin. We don't come into Christianity and then all of a sudden live in such a way that it's on us to grow and mature and deal with our sin. It's always about the gospel from A to Z, the whole alphabet of the Christian life. And so every time that that you are, are challenged with a sin that you have, you don't muster up the strength to conquer it. You go back to the very gospel. You turn from that sin, repenting of it, and trust in Jesus to forgive you. Every time you, you want to grow closer to God, the way to grow closer to God isn't doing all these uh, works that, that can could, that could somehow get you closer, but it is repentance and faith going back and learning about what God has done for you. This is the description of the life that Paul gives us. In trying to explain this, Paul launches into a wonderful mixed metaphor. Uh, Paul is, on many occasions, uses mixed metaphors, uh, but this one's a whopper. This is great. Verse 7, Christians are to walk being rooted like a tree, very challenging, solidly built up like a house, 
established like a legal document, so that you will overflow like a jug full of wine. That's great. In <laughs> um, all these images that are being used there, I think he, he does have Psalm 1 in the back of his mind. We read that this morning, this, this description of the blessed man. What is the blessed man? The one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. The one who is like a tree planted by streams of water that will yield fruit in its season. It's this image of stability and strength. The healthy tree is almost impossible to bring down. With a healthy tree, you can push it, you can pull it, you can ram your car into it, and it doesn't budge. The wicked, by contrast, have no roots at all. The chaff is blown away. And it's not just blown and moved. It's blown away. Disappears. And the point there is not the size of the tree that makes it hard to bring down. It's the strength of the root system. It's the fact that it's rooted well by streams of water. Paul is clearly pointing them to their roots. That is your, your source of security, is your root, how you began. And then when he says to be built up, it's the same answer. How you were rooted? In Christ. How you're to be built up? In him. So how does assurance really protect us? How does it provide that, that defense? Well, you think about the ways that doubt come into our mind. Think about the ways in which we are drawn away from faith. Well, it comes either of two ways. Either it comes as we look at ourselves. We see the struggles that we have with sin. We, we have the cold, distant heart toward God. And we hear the accusation of others that say, you don't belong. What's the gospel response to it? If we're well-rooted, it's not, I'm going to stick my fingers in my ear and pretend that I'm okay. The gospel response is, yes, you are right to accuse me. In fact, I'm way worse than you even know. I mean, I could just start to explain how bad I am, and, and you're going to run away horrified. It's true. I can embrace that. But I'm also far more loved because of what Christ has done. How we find assurance? Finding assurance is continually doing that battle of fighting truth fighting with truth against the lies that come up to us. The constant lies that tell us that we don't belong, the constant lies that tell us that God needs us to do more, that, we don't, that there's no possible way he could affirm and accept us. Fighting them with the truth of the gospel. Because we either believe that or we believe what God says. Our path to assurance is turning again and again to God's word each and every day. But sometimes it's not just in us where the doubts come. Sometimes it's in Christ. And this comes in subtle ways. It won't always come by saying, well, Christ is insufficient. He didn't do enough. No, it comes by looking at other things that, that seem to be necessary for the Christian life to determine our worth. You get what I'm saying? That the whole book of Colossians is trying to assert 
that Christ is preeminent, that he's unlike anything in the world. And the more that we turn to those other things, the more that we are turning away from Christ. The best way to find assurance is to spend time learning about Christ, who he is. Do you know him? A deep exploration of him. Yes, it's simple, but it's not simplistic. St. Jerome said of the Gospel of John that it is, it is shallow enough for a baby to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And that's exactly what Christ is. If we learn about Christ, we see that he's not just the ABCs that anybody can understand and come to. But in verse 3, Paul says that he, there are riches and depths to this that we can spend our entire life and not scratch the surface. All right, so what is the take-home? What's the response to this? We just have two things. First, the question, do you have assurance? Do you know where you stand with God? If you're new to Christianity, that may surprise you. You may ask, how can Christians be so confident? And if that's where, you at, if that's where you're at right now, let's talk. Because it's a confidence that doesn't come in us. If confidence is joined with pride, you know that it's false confidence. But a Christian can be both proud, a Christian can be both humble and confident at the same time because our confidence rests in something else, in Christ alone. If you are a Christian, do you know that God wants this for you? That assurance is not just contentment and joy, but it is the very thing that will guard you and protect you against the subtle drift. It's the very thing that protects you against the dry season, the season of despair, the season when you're overwhelmed, when you feel inadequate. It is the very source of your spiritual battle as you fight those things that creep into your heart that try to lead you away. Going back to the surety that we have in Christ. That's the first point. The second is to you who are generally unconcerned about assurance. You know, you know that you're a Christian, but you have perhaps drifted into a sort of maintenance, maintenance faith. You aren't particularly concerned about threats out there. You don't really believe that there could be things that will take you captive. Assurance is not presumption, it's not false confidence, but it's necessary. Westminster says that it's the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. There is a danger when we don't bring diligence to that. What, it, what does it mean to be diligent? It means to take Christ's work seriously and to take our sin seriously as well. A daily looking at ourselves and then looking to Christ and knowing that there is no other source of contentment or confidence. Finally, there's one other piece that is needed to diligently seek this out. 
that's often overlooked. It's the place of community. In verse 2, Paul uh, says he greatly desires them to be knit together. And in that metaphor, we expect him to say, knit together in love. And he does say that. That really the community is supposed to be joined together in love. But grammatically, knit together doesn't just govern love in this passage. Knit together also governs assurance. That as we're knit together, as we as a a gospel community come together and live in each other's lives, we can find assurance. Because we're not left with the echo chamber of our own minds. We're not left with the things that, that constantly work in our hearts that lead us away, brought into community, all of a sudden I got somebody who will confront me with the things that I'm saying about myself. They'll confront me with my behavior that I need to turn from. They'll, they'll confront me with my, the way I understand Christ and my, my, my weakness or my lack of understanding his grace, salvation. Being here week after week gives me the pushback that I desperately need as we strive together, as Paul himself was striving for this group so that we could be rooted, built up, and established in Christ. Let's pray.